Welcome to the Petro Papers podcast. Say that 10 times fast. This is where you get your oil and gas intellectual stimulation by asking the technical questions. I'm Yoga Sri Pradhan. And with me here today, I have Oladapo Adijari from Revotest. Today, I am going to talk about Ertec 372-3724 and ask Oladapo the technical questions, peppering him with the questions based on the paper that he wrote most recently. The paper title and the description is in the description box for viewers and listeners. Welcome to the podcast, Dapo. Hey, thanks for having me. I am really excited to start season three of Petro Papers, and I'm really glad to kick it off with you. Honored to be here. You've had some uh, distinguished uh, guests on in the past, so uh, it's a great honor. Perfect. I wanted to go ahead and just read a little bit about you before I start peppering you with some of the questions. So Dapo is a reservoir engineer for Revo Testing Technologies. He's also been a research engineer for NALCO Champion and focused on well performance modeling. He graduated from Texas A&M University with his Master of Science in Petroleum Engineering and then the University of Lagos in the Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering. So he also worked as an audit associate for KPMG Nigeria for about a year. So Dapo, I'm really glad to have you on the podcast and I'm just going to go ahead and get started. Great, let's do it. Well, to orient our viewers and listeners, I wanted to ask you, could you briefly describe the paper and the methodology? Yeah, our uh, objective was to find a way of correlating uh, performance uh, during the initial production period, that's within the first one to two months uh, of production, with uh, long-term performance. Uh, that's three to five years or until the well is abandoned. So uh, that's what motivated this paper primarily. And the idea is to, on one hand, be able to understand how wells can perform very early on and can get some basis for a a more reliable forecast using that initial production data. And the other uh, idea is if we're able to do that, then we can uh, use that as a part of a well surveillance tool for monitoring uh, wells performance um, through its life, not just during the initial production period. So that was the main uh, motivation. And one of the main challenges that we faced was uh, the non-uniqueness of the analysis in the sense that there's a wide range of probabilities and factor half lengths that we could use to uh, match the data. And so if we wanted to get a consistent interpretation that we can uh, use to compare one wall to another. Um, there's a challenge there in, in, in terms of finding the probability that we could use uh, consistently from one wall to another. So uh, when we review the literature, uh, we found that uh, there'd been publications in the past where uh, the analysts had used uh, radio flow analysis for evaluating performance in low parent reach reservoirs. And so what we had to figure out was how to combine that assumption with the a way of determining the number of dominant factors, and then also identifying signatures on the world law plots and a normalized regulative plot that we can use to diagnose uh, early factor interference. So it was based on uh, 
but just reviewing the literature and then also bringing some additional insights from uh, looking at lots of initial production data from hundreds of wells across multiple basins to see if there were signatures that indicated that uh, even if fractures were not necessarily propagating radially, but at least we're seeing something that looked like interference that we could use as a way of constraining uh, the analysis and determining uh, a unique estimate of the permeability of fracture health line. Awesome. I was really interested when I read the paper because I know the importance of high resolution data. And I'm going to go ahead and ask you about that later on in the podcast. But you, I wanted to touch upon what you've mentioned about understanding the number of fractures. What are the implications to early interference between dominant fractures? What should engineers and management be concerned about just based on some of the work that you've done? It's not necessarily uh, indicating something that we should be concerned about. It just indicates that there is it's one more tool in the toolbox that can be used to model and forecast production. And the advantage is that it can be done very early on. And so you can start to get an understanding of how well it's performing relative to another wall pretty early on, as opposed to uh, waiting to get uh, more data. Now, uh, in terms of uh, economic optimization, permeability is an important factor. Uh, if permeability is higher, then uh, in principle, you should space your clusters uh, more um, further apart. Uh, and if permeability is lower, uh, you can, uh, you'd have to space your clusters more closely in order to, uh, to drain the reservoir effectively. Now, having said that, uh, even though we're getting a permeability estimate from this analysis, I wouldn't use that alone uh, as a way of optimizing uh, the cluster spacing. I would make sure that I'm combining that information with other diagnostic information. I'd make sure there's some consistency uh, before uh, drawing uh, conclusions about what this analysis might be indicating that, as to whether uh, the cluster spacing was optimal or not. So the, the main thing is, is, is it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one more tool in the toolbox and it's indicating that there are signatures that are occurring early in the world's life that can give some additional information uh, that should be considered uh, along with other information in uh, forecasting production and in optimizing uh, completion designs and wall spacing. But I wouldn't rely on this on its own to draw those conclusions. Great. It does take a lot of pieces of data in order to come up with a conclusion or to converge to a certain conclusion. So I'm, exactly. glad to know, so I'm glad to know this is a part of the engineering toolbox. And I can admit that when looking at some of this data, especially when reading the paper, it seems like it's very useful information. Yes, indeed. Uh, so that's, um, that's how we like to phrase it. It's one more tool in the toolbox. It's one more way of estimating impermeability. And you should compare this with, if you have defects uh, data, for example, see what the permeability you get from this analysis is and compare with the defect. If you've got uh, information about your, uh, about your perforation friction, how much perforation friction did you have across uh, the clusters in each stage? Was it sufficient to ensure that each stage was taking fluid and problems? And just tie that back to the number of clusters you're calculating from this analysis and see if there's some consistency there. Uh, do you have information about, say, uh, isolation between clusters outside of the casing? Is it possible that you know uh, there's uh, fluid propagating uh, 
between the cement sheet and the casing and uh, it causing a coalescence of the fractures between different clusters or um, how much stress shadowing do you anticipate can be occurring uh, between the clusters uh, in the formation. So if, if fractures start to propagate from one cluster, will that prevent uh, fractures from other clusters from propagating? So if you have to integrate all of that information in, into uh, the analysis to see if the results are consistent, and then if they are, then maybe this can, can lead you to um, some strong conclusions, but I would not use this information on its own, other than to say that it's one more tool in toolbox and you can start applying it really early in the world's life for the first 30 to 60 days. Absolutely. In, I wanted to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about choke management and drawdown strategies, for example. And the paper has talked about advising an engineered choke strategy. And I know a lot of people have different opinions on drawdown strategy, whether to rip it open or use an engineered choke strategy. And there've been many papers that have different, that discuss different sides of the spectrum. So I wanted to get your take. Do all reservoirs require an engineered choke strategy? Um, so my answer would be um, that an engineered choke strategy is, is, is a, I see it as a subset of wall surveillance. So basically you've got, it's a wall surveillance tool. Um, if you can build a wall surveillance tool that makes it easy to monitor your wall's performance and that can alert you to changes in the wall's performance in real time, I like to assume, I like to believe that that's something that every operator would like to have. So from that perspective, from the perspective of wall surveillance and automated uh, modeling of wall performance to understand how it's changing and to get alerts as to uh, if you start to have a problem with the wall's performance, then I'll say if you can automate the process to where it's it's uh, it's it's not time consuming to monitor a large number of walls at the same time, then yes, you should go for it. Um, so it's I see more as a general question about wall surveillance, uh, and I see choke management as just a smaller subset of wall surveillance. And um, I guess I, I could turn that question around to you. Uh, working for an operating company, would you like to be able to see how your walls are performing in real time and be able to diagnose problems immediately as opposed to uh, having to find out a little bit later um, and also having to spend a lot of time gathering that information as opposed to having an automated process? I plead the fifth. No, I just uh, wanted to mention to you. <laughs> No, I, you bring up a really good point. I do want to mention that a lot of the thoughts, especially on this podcast, are, are my own. But, okay, but no, but yes, we're working for a company. I would think that having that high resolution data is very important, especially as an engineer. I love data. So mm -hmm. upon reading your paper or reading the, the company's, your company's paper, it was very interesting and it, it just excited me, which is why I wanted to have you on the on the podcast. But I, I would have to admit that having the data to understand what is the right strategy is definitely important. Yeah, so, and, and I've definitely observed a wide range of uh, characteristics. Some wells are suited to uh, faster choke changes and others are not. And if you can automate the process, it's then easy to identify and understand 
which strategy works best for which well. And so that's, uh, does every well require that? Well, if you want to calibrate and understand how every well is performing, then the only way to find out is to have a process that's automated that allows you to monitor easily. Perfect. I wanted to also talk about some elements of the paper. Mm-hmm. For example, there, there can be indications of damage from some of the high resolution data. There can be, in, you can see whether if there's indications of damage or potential damage. Can't you also see that in the diagnostic plots when you're doing the RTA? Because there was some discussion on RTA in the paper as well. Has there been any corroboration with seeing damage in the high resolution data along with seeing skin on the di- in the diagnostic plots? So yeah, so um, the analysis determines a skin factor, which is converted to a factor health length. So some of the damage that we see is in the form of a decrease in the factor health length, uh, which is the skin. <clears throat> And sometimes we also see a combination of a decrease in the fractal health length of skin and the far field transmissibility. So the fractal health length would be a reflection of, <clears throat> of, the, uh, of damage near the wall bore or in the fractures. And then we also see sometimes a, a degradation of far field transmissibility or a combination of the two. So um, I've seen both occur. Perfect. Answer a question, or was there? A... You answer. You answer my question, and I guess this is one of those. I guess this is one of those questions that I have in terms of identifying damage, and coming from somebody that works for an operator, can this damage be repaired? And yeah, can this damage be repaired? So um, one thing that I've observed is sometimes uh, there's a there's a um, what may be best described as a uh, pressure dependence uh, damage, and when sometimes when you apply when you apply a lot of drawdown, you start to see a decrease in performance, and then when you relax that drawdown either you choke the wall back a bit or you hold the choke for a little bit longer, uh, you see that that damage dissipates. What causes that to happen? Uh, I can't say for sure, but typically what would characterize that as, as if the formation is very, uh, is what we consider to be stress sensitive, then it's usually less forgiving in that regard meaning that if you've applied so much drawdown to where you start to see a degradation performance, then there's uh, nothing that can be done to restore that loss of performance. Um, And then there are other formations that are more forgiving where when you apply a lot of drawdown, you may start to see a degradation in performance. And then when you relax that drawdown, you choke the ball back, you can see the ball recover. And so um, we don't necessarily know why that happens, but we chalk it down to uh, the degree of stress sensitivity. So it is possible, uh, but it just depends on what would generally term the stress sensitivity of the formation. Well, thanks for giving me hope in the sense that there is a, there, 
are ways to redeem yourself if there is damage that is identified. Again, I really enjoyed looking at this data, which is why I was I couldn't wait to talk to you about this because I had tons of questions. Excellent. Well, I wanted to pivot again to fracture interference because the paper does talk about that. Yep. And you've gotten a couple examples from the SP repository. Mm -hmm. Now, the SP repository has some older vintage wells that yes. was used for the analysis. So mm -hmm. I was curious to know, is there a limit where it would be difficult to tell intercluster or interfracture interference? Because the case studies you show had relatively light completion intensities and compared to the completion designs pumped today and unconventionals. So what if we had like 10 clusters a stage or 20 clusters a stage? Can we still tell the intercluster and inter and interfracture interference? Uh, yes, yeah, so that's an excellent question. So uh, for those that may not be familiar with it, the SP data repository is a publicly accessible uh, database with uh, about 50 walls right now uh, from uh, two, three, four uh, unconventional reservoirs. Uh, it's a public available database that anyone can go in and download and analyze. So the reason why we chose those data sets is because uh, it would be easier for people to reproduce what we did uh, because that data is publicly available. So we have applied the, the analysis to uh, what you'd call Gen 4 completions uh, with very tight cluster spacing, uh, 15 feet, 20 feet between clusters. And I've observed up to say 20 or 30 or 40% cluster efficiency for using this analysis uh, when applied to those walls. So that's indicating say uh, two out of every five or one out of every three uh, on low end, one out of every five clusters is contributing to uh, far field uh, drainage. Now, um, does that, uh, and, and going back to what I said earlier, I wouldn't use the values we determined from the analysis on their own as an indication of how um, effective uh, the frac design was in initiating and propagating uh, fractures, and also as an indication of how closely or widely spaced clusters should be. What I would do, as I said earlier, is to combine that information with all that diagnostic information, I see there's some consistency. It is possible that there may not be, uh, which, in which case uh, I would, you know, I'm perfectly happy to, uh, you know, to, uh, to not place a lot of emphasis on the results of the analysis. However, if it is consistent with uh, what's been observed with our diagnostic information, then that could continue in some, in, in, in a direction as to indicating what uh, the best way forward is to optimize the uh, completions. Now, there have been some instances where we've calculated uh, a very low number of clusters or cluster efficiency. So instead of 20, 30%, uh, using 5%, even though the clusters were spaced very closely. Now, in those instances, one of the things I think is happening is it's possibly indicating that there may be um, some inconsistencies in the inputs. So for example, I've noticed for some wells with very high water cuts uh, that um, the, there's an inconsistency between the contacted volume uh, from flow material balance plot and the 
petrophysical inputs, which is indicating possibly that either you're assuming um, you're assuming uh, the water rates that you're assuming is coming from the reservoir is, is, is much higher than the actual rate, or you're um, or there's something wrong with the uh, input saturations, or the hyperstage is smaller than the uh, uh, petrophysically derived. Uh, the actual hyperstage is much higher than the petrophysically derived uh, value. So uh, when we observe that the number of clusters is low, it is possible that maybe it's something going on with the inputs. The other possibility is, again, if you are able to confirm with the operator, or as an operator, you're able to confirm uh, internally that there may have been something that went on with the completion design that may have reduced the cost efficiency. So in some instances, we've been able to confirm that the operator did not believe that the isolation on the outside of the case was very effective. And so it seemed reasonable that factors would correlate and you'd have a few dominant factors as opposed to um, having uh, many uh, smaller factors. Uh, being created. So um, we have seen some results that don't make sense. We think there may be some physical explanations for that. Uh, we do see results that seem reasonable uh, in terms of cluster efficiency, say 20 to 30 or 40% cluster efficiency. And uh, again, I'll just say, okay, this is just one more way of analyzing data and it's just one more tool in the toolbox. And you should compare it with all the other information to see if it makes sense or not before drawing conclusions. Thank you. So yeah, so the question specifically, is there a limit? Uh, possibly, in, in, in theory, possibly yes, because one of the assumptions in the analysis is that um, in order to generate what looks like a, a radial or radial flow signature, you have to have a relatively short effective factor health length, and you also have to have a sufficient space between the clusters. Uh, for that signature to develop. So if there isn't enough space because the clusters are closely spaced and the completion design is very uh, effective in generating uh, factors from each cluster, then that's our assumption would not be valid. And so the probability that you estimate is gonna be higher. So it's still, it, that is it's gonna give you something like a, a higher limit, an upper limit for your permission be. And then it's also going to give you a lower limit for your fact how it should be if the assumptions for the analysis are, are not correct or valid. Thank you for that clarification, Dabo. Uh, you're welcome. So I had a another question for you, and the paper talks about rate transient analysis and some of the limitations of RTA is the assumption of single phase flow, for instance. Mm -hmm. And and though in the case study, it was either an oil well, or in the case studies you presented, it was either an oil well or a gas well. Can yeah. this analysis be done in multi-phase wells? Yes, it can. So uh, the gas well was in the Marcellus, so it was effectively dry gas in the phase. Uh, the oil well was a legal flood well, so it was a multi-phase example, actually. So uh, we do take into account the uh, other phases in calculating the, um, so there's a workflow that for calculating the number of fractures and that workflow, we use the contacted volume at the time at which interference is occurring as indicated by signatures on the log log plot. Uh, and so that volume is actually calculated using all the, all the phases. And I mentioned earlier regarding your last question that sometimes there's some uncertainty introduced uh, because of uh, the water rates. It's especially early on, 
um, during the um, during the flow back before, uh, you start to see uh, water oil ratio that's representative of the reservoir. Uh, you might underestimate or overestimate that reservoir water rate, and then that that could introduce some errors in the uh, contacted volume and the analysis. So we do account for all the phases, and basically what. What we showed in that paper is the parameters that we determine for an analytical model that we then use to seed the numerical model. So for that EU4 example, I didn't show that, but what I did was to take those parameters and plug it into a numerical model. And then the numerical model has the PVT and the raw perms and uh, all the other good stuff um, that you can then use to uh, match the uh, multi-phase four effect. So you'd uh, adjust the PVT as needed and the raw perms as needed to, to match the, uh, the gas oil ratio. But you see the model with the permeability and fracture health length from that. You see the numerical model with the permeability and fracture health length from the analytical model because the analytical model was um, matched using um, all, the, all the phases. Perfect. That's good to know because I know there are quite a few people that listen to the podcast. They're actually primarily from the Permian Basin. So having multi-phase effects taken into account of is very important. Yes, indeed. And we have applied this to, in fact, some of the first wells we applied this to were uh, where we're from, very high water cut wells. Yes, exactly. There's one more question I have to ask you, and I can't let you go for this, but... What are some implications of this analysis that we haven't seen before in the industry? Uh, the main implication is uh, we got to, you know, so one of the challenges we had in, in terms of uh, comparing well performance at the end of flow back is what permeability do we use? So with this workflow, we are able to get a permeability estimate. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, take this, you know, it's, not necessarily uh, the best or most accurate probability estimate, but it is a value that we can get consistently and apply across different wells when we're comparing all performance. Um, the other implication is it's an independent estimate of cluster efficiency, as in it's assuming all our assumptions are correct. It does give an indication of the number of clusters that are draining um, far field away from the uh, away from the well bore number of dominant clusters um, that are draining the reservoir. Um, the third uh, main implication is being able to forecast production right at the end of flowback. What we've observed is that the fractal length and permeability that we determined, uh, if they don't change significantly, then you can use them quite reliably for a forecast. Now, uh, sometimes we've seen um, even we do see that there's a deviation from linear flow uh, right at the end of flowback. And so to get the a correct forecast, you just have to um, use apply fractal dimension, the appropriate fractal dimension using these parameters to get a, a forecast that matches the data quite well. So, uh, and that's been something we've been trying to do. And I think that, I think that many uh, other people in the industry might find value in is you can start to forecast production very early on with this with this workflow. You can determine parameters very early on with this workflow that you can use for production forecasting. Then the other uh, implication 
is if you have a model that's reliable and that you can use consistently, you can use it as a basis for monitoring long-term performance. And what we've observed again is um, we see deviations in this model that coincide with say um, a deviation from linear flow or channel flow. So when this model starts to indicate a decrease in performance, it's clearly coincides with the point at which you're seeing a deviation from linear channel flow on the wall flow plot. So in terms of alerting you to those things in real time, if you have this kind of model that allows you to, you know, to monitor, again, as a wall surveillance tool, uh, this can find a lot of practical application. Then the last application I would say um, that's relatively unique is ranking wall performance early on. There's a wide, there's a large number of ways of doing this, but again, the challenge we had was in, in terms of determining a permeability that we can uh, compare with permeabilities that we're determining from other worlds. So we do get a unique estimate of permeability. And so that allows us to um, rank wells in terms of permeability and fractal length and number of dormant fractures. So it gives some additional insights as to how wells have been performing uh, than um, other forms of analysis that don't give you any estimate of permeability. Excellent. Well, I'm really glad I asked you that question. Didn't realize there were so many implications. And I could tell, I could tell from the paper that there were quite a few implications, but thank you for listing them out for us. I hope I hope they are. I hope people uh, try out the workflow and see the uh, see the same results and also critique it. We certainly don't think it's uh, I was thinking for myself and my co-authors, we don't think it's perfect. You know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's some limited, limiting assumptions that may not always apply. And so I think there are times when it might fail, but we have found value in it. And we thought we should just share it with, uh, with everyone and see what other people have to say. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dapo, for letting me pepper you with questions. Well, thank you, Yoshi. I really appreciate uh, coming on. Like I said earlier, you've had some really distinguished uh, guests, so I'm really honored. Well, that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for listening to this Urtech paper. And once again, I'd like to thank Dapo for letting me pepper him with questions. If you have a paper that you'd like for me to read and then pepper you with questions, feel free to reach out to me. Our contact information's in the description box below. I'm Yoga Shri Pradhan. This is Petro Papers, and we're signing off. <laughs>